is Steve Stein, and welcome back to another episode of Inside Asia. I'm back in Singapore, and this time exploring the world of high net worth Asia family wealth. My guest is Rob Garrett, innovation and impact investment specialist and managing partner at Hazar Ventures. We hear a lot these days about the escalating global wealth gap, how the rich are getting richer and the poor getting poorer. Much of that wealth is acquired and accrued by family dynasties. Globally, something in the range of U.S. $6 trillion is thought to be controlled by private family interests, with Asian families accounting for nearly a third of that. For historical and political reasons, Asian families are quiet about their money. How or where they invest is a private affair. But as my conversation with Rob reveals, opportunity, necessity, and generational influence are converging. Profits are still important, but so is the positive impact of investments that generate environmental or social good. I opened my conversation with Rob by asking him to gauge the growing influence of impact investing in Asia, and specifically the prospects for family wealth fund participation. So Hazar Ventures, the business that I set up in Dubai uh, four and a half years ago, co-founded with uh, um, a friend who come, stems from a, a family business background or family business origins, um, has has long sort of focused on working with and, and understanding and um, targeting, for want of a better word, um, relationships with, with family businesses. And, um, you know, we've done events in the past with the Financial Times where I think a statistic that the Financial Times used was that um, globally 70% of GDP can trace its origins back to to family business origins. And that's, you know, that's tracing it as far as, you know, to say that JP Morgan was originally a family founded business, mm. going down to, you know, the corner shops, um, the ubiquitous corner shops on street corners in, you know, great world cities, um, you know, New York, London, Mumbai, wherever it may be to, you know, the five person um, textiles business, yeah. you know, the, these are family businesses at their root. Um, and, um, you know, I've read some statistics that in emerging Asia, um, and let's take that from the Bosphorus all the way across, so the, the greater span of Asia, up to 90% of GDP in some emerging economies, which are fast growing, um, stems from family businesses. And I think probably the exceptions to that are the major, um, you know, more controlled economies um, with, with stronger government control. Yeah, and I think for the purposes of this conversation, we're really talking about the large multi-billion dollar businesses, the family-run conglomerates, if you will, uh, that had, for right or for wrong have uh, secured some of the great government contracts, uh, were maybe handed the license or the rights to manage oil and gas or some of the big utilities, commodity businesses, um, and as a result have accrued a lot of wealth, but are now in positions of strength and power and influence. And you have a particularly interesting uh, angle on working with family-run businesses which deal with the aspect of impact investing. Can you tell us a little bit about why family-run business is an impact and, again, how you moved into this area? Um, yeah, so um, our focus within Hazar Ventures is on finding and leading to the execution of interesting investments. That was that was our raison d'etre when we started the business um, in Dubai. And that's kind of flowed with me since I've transitioned to living in Asia. And, um, you know, we, yeah, we do focus on 
um, working with and building relationships with and adding value to the family businesses that are those multinational conglomerates in and of their own right. But particularly on focusing on working with the internal investment organisations that stem out of those huge wealthy um, family businesses and in some cases um, a multitude of them within in individual families, um, the, the so-called family offices. Um, and particularly within that, a trend that we have seen emerging um, and a trend that we are keen to follow and to be part of the driving of the architecture of across Asia is the impact investing space. I think that's driven by personal relationships that my co-founder and I um, have and have fostered where we have European families who have been investing in the space either by design or by um, default or by happy accident they've invested in the space for a long time some as far back as 20-25 years. But before impact investing even was a term? Before impact investing was even a term and you know we um, also have close relationships that we've developed over more recent times with you know those who have much more experience and much more qualified than I am to talk about this space such as um, you know the great Robert Rubinstein who um, I don't know if you've ever met him but you should definitely interview him when he comes over to Asia later in the year and he runs an organization called TBLI triple bottom line investing um, and they're running two conferences um, later in the year in Singapore, Hong Kong, and then a third actually later, even in December, up in Beijing, I think, um, where you know they bring all of the, the participants in the architecture of impact together, be it family businesses, you know, sovereign wealth funds, pension funds, multinational corporations, corporate venture vehicles. Um, but that trend has been fast emerging in the US where we have less interaction, Europe, um, and it is it is growing arms and legs. And really, you know, we seek to be active participants and to help the families understand where the opportunity lies to really create positive impact, but also for to fulfill the purpose of family offices, to get proper commercial return from investing in that space. You know, one of the characteristics of family-run businesses or family conglomerates in Asia has been aspects of philanthropy. Uh, large givers, maybe some of it was politically motivated, some of it guilt, some of it just because there were great causes that the family believed in. But the idea of impact investing um, is is almost a, a new concept that uh, doesn't, it, it's, it's almost runs closer to the standard day-to-day -day business, but has an, a positive environmental or social outcome. Um, do you feel that among the family-run businesses in Asia, there's that understanding of what impact is? Or is that getting in your way when it comes to marketing these ideas to them? Um, so I don't seek to comment on you know, the, the full span of family-run businesses, but the small microcosm of family-run businesses that we are lucky enough to get to know, I do see an increasing trend of people interested seeking to expand their knowledge in the space um, and you know to them I spend a lot of my time connecting them to people who have more knowledge than I do to people who can add value to them and to other families who have um, you know uh, created value for themselves 
learned lessons, built businesses on solid impact foundations. Um, I think that you know the appreciation that impact um, can drive commercial returns is a, is a growing one. To your point about philanthropy, um, you know I think that philanthropy is necessary. Um, I think that it you know should be applauded, um, but I think that also if the mission of family businesses, if the mission of commer- commerce and, and commercial businesses is to attain growth, um, there needs to be an appreciation that um, positive environmental impact, positive social impact is not mutually exclusive with growth. In fact, we're finding now that you know, with the institutional investment community, it's almost um, a given, almost necessary and required that their ESG criteria are fulfilled. And yet, you know, there are instances I do think, and this is my humble personal opinion, that um, sometimes there can be an element of greenwashing. People are saying things are sustainable or impactful without really drilling down to understand what the impact is. And my personal um, mission is to see environmental impact um, pushed to the fore because I think we face an uh, an unfathomable climate crisis. I mean, it's almost like we are standing to analogize. It's like the captain of the Titanic standing on the bridge and shouting in slow motion, iceberg, and you know, hearing it drift off into the night um, as we we plow headlong into that iceberg and we we are facing a crisis you know rob where is this awakening coming from within the family-run businesses is it first generation second third uh is it the idea that uh, after many of these organizations have been driving large sometimes polluting businesses or in areas like palm oil or coal or other areas they're feeling this element of okay maybe it's time to rethink this where is the uh motivation uh dwell uh, welling from uh, or is it coming from the outside just the fact that news and insights and information suggest that not to do anything is as foolhardy as to do something? Um, I think a multitude of factors. I think that family offices have often stemmed from the separation of powers. So as families have moved away from the day-to-day running of the conglomerates that they've built, and they are able to give them that fr- themselves that freedom of thought to run a family office even if they're not running the family office as family members but to be in charge of the governance or oversight of their family offices and to be able to free their thinking capacity to focus on new issues that's giving more capacity to understand combine that with the flow of information you know we live in a society in a world now where there is so much information available and you know with the um, with the advent of the digital age, you, you, know, you can read about the Amazon being in flames um, today in, in real time, and that was never possible you know, generations ago. Um, I do think that there is a generational thing. I think that you know, third, fourth generation family members, or just the younger generation, you know, because they are also more connected to their peers in other societies. And, you know, is it a societal thing? I Look, I think that impact, sustainability has been 
part of the the new wave um you know so those kids of asian families who have gone to university in california or you know elsewhere in the north america or they've gone to the uk um maybe it's the liberalism um of western universities they've been exposed to but they've also seen you know new technologies um rising up and i think that there's a you know the world is much more connected um there's a lot of opportunity for them to then look for opportunity across the world and to see how they can bring it into their own societies and into their own family businesses this is steve stein you're listening to my conversation with impact investor and family office managing partner rob garrett We've been discussing the rise of the family office in Asia, the breadth and depth of family money influence in the region, and what now moves some of these organizations to contemplate a shift in investment strategy. When we come back, a look at what might motivate Asia's wealthiest families to diversify away from conventional businesses to new ventures that offer positive impact to society and environment. Back in a minute. You're listening to Inside Asia, and I'm in conversation with Rob Garrett, managing partner of Singapore-based Hazar Ventures. In the second half of our discussion, we talk about the growing influence of third-generation family-run businesses and how globalization, exposure to new ideas and innovation, and a yearning to sustain Asia's dwindling resources are all conspiring to form a new investment outlook. So many of these uh, uh, Asian-based families or businesses were built on the back of nations, nations building. So there is heads down, there is competition between families. You can see it in almost any country in Asia, if you one to the next, Thailand, Indonesia, Malaysia, you name it. But these issues, these issues of environment and social justice and uh, you know other things that are merit impact investing are cross-border. To what degree do you find a willingness among these family offices to collaborate or cooperate with other family businesses in other markets? I think it's an increasing trend. Um, Impact and sustainability, look, it's an emerging trend. It's very young. Um, You know, uh, 25 years ago, it was an unheard of term. 15 years ago, it was really, you know, only the the first runners who'd heard about it. And only five years ago did it become part of the vernacular. And only really in the last one or two years have we really started to hear about it. You know, things like um, Sir David Attenborough's um, Blue Planet and, you know, the the crisis of the oceans um, and the plastic crisis have suddenly just become, they've mushroomed in visibility and perception. Um, and I, I think that, you know, as that comes about, families in Asia will look to their peers in other markets and say, okay, these guys have been involved in this space for 20 years. They've got a 20 year head start on us. Perhaps we can partner up with them. And, you know, with the, the world being a more globally connected place, I think that offers up huge opportunities. And that's part of what um, you know, I am seeking to architect with with partners is to create opportunities for families to collaborate, to co-invest with one another. I think that's a trend. You know, we've I think there's been a trend for quite some years now of families who've built their businesses in one particular sector um, seeking to keep their focus in that sector and then add on additional sectors that are complementary. Mm-hmm but then not seek to get distracted and diversify totally outside. 
that has become the um, the role of the family office to to offer that diversification. So you know, a family that might be involved in energy and resources would perhaps go and seek to get involved in property through co-investing with a family that's been a specialist property developer. And I think Impact offers many of those opportunities as well. So it's a path to diversification. I, I certainly think so. And uh, you know, part of my personal mission is to seek to offer opportunities to those families to get educated, to get better informed about the space, but also to try and drive towards a path whereby, you know, if there is an allocation, a defined allocation from families of wealth um, to invest a certain amount of their wealth into diversification outside of their core business activities, to enhance their visibility of what impactful things they could invest in and ultimately if we could get every man woman and child on the earth to do five percent of whatever saving or giving or you know investment into environmentally impactful um, outcomes then we would start to get towards addressing the the huge climate challenge we face there is a bit of a of a ethical or an or a um uh, and it, and an issue which is which is must be beating at the heads of some of these family-run businesses, which is many of them have built their wealth on the back of large, uh, sometimes polluting, sometimes damaging industries. I mean, you know, you could take many, but take palm oil, for instance, or coal as another. Um, how can they, on the one hand, continue to do those and provide those services and generate those types of products, while at the same time saying I'm prepared to diversify in some small way to lend my a bit of our income towards other things. Is it an internal process where they, uh, for instance, we spoke earlier about generating, let's say, a percentage on clean coal or doing sustainable farming around palm plantations? Is that a viable and interesting option for them, uh, or do they still see them the two as separate? This is what we do. It's what we've done for three generations. We're not going to stop doing that, but we also will slowly start investing in other more uh, impactful types of uh, adventures so I think if we talk about you know the family business sector as a micro economy um, there are there are broader macroeconomic considerations around switching off coal implementing clean coal um, you know diversifying away from palm oil and you know drivers that come from the demand you know that the, the families don't necessarily influence where the demand comes from. And I think that's where we have to have a huge multilateral effort. You know, MNCs need to address their demand for palm oil and they need to address their energy demand that demands that they, you know, need um, coal-fired power stations in the emerging world to still be burning coal. And I think that governments have a role to play as well with, you know, putting in place measures, be it tariffs or import um, other import restrictions, um, you know, to enhance ways for these family businesses to be able to say, well, we can switch off the tap. But also for the, you know, for the family businesses that are involved in the production of those resources, taking palm oil and coal, for instance, they've got broader macroeconomic considerations outside of we're a coal producer, we're a palm oil producer. They've got to think about the livelihoods of the multitude, sometimes in the millions of livelihoods that are affected by the fact that, you know, they are a coal or a palm oil producer. And, you know, it is a delicate balance to strike. 
Um, but I think it, it really does take broad multilateral effort. And, you know, this week being G7, um, you know, I think governments have a big role to play and they need to really start to think about this. And it's not enough to just have platitudes. Um, we're moving beyond that. Well, we, we are talking about impact, though. And if you go back to the beginning of the conversation, where you said up to 90% of uh, the wealth or, or the GDP in Asia Pacific is from family-run businesses, including SMEs and others, doesn't it feel logical that the organi- or the individuals or the, 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 the segment that can have the biggest impact would be family offices and family businesses. Governments by nature are slow moving. Uh, many of them are underfunded. Uh, there's tax issues, <laughs> raising tax. They've got other things like education and healthcare to attend to. Multinationals are largely interlopers coming in, you know, doing what they can, selling what they can, exploiting what they can. And then they're going to go back to their corporate headquarters. At the end of the day, these Asian conglomerates are responsible for uh, the viability of the markets within which they were raised and operate, isn't it? And that's a that's a tough one to to lay that burden at just the family conglomerate store. I look well, burden or opportunity. It depends on how you spin it, doesn't it? It does. It does. Burden or opportunity. However, I think that you're never going to get a family board member, a family member CEO, or for that matter, you know, a, a non-family member CEO of a family conglomerate who's going to willingly be the first to raise their hand. And, you know, last week or the week before, I can't remember exactly when it was, you know, you had the business roundtable um, uh, pronouncement, for want of a better word, um, you know, press release saying that we have moved now from an age in corporate America where profit must come first above all metrics. And I believe that that tallies... Um, you know, the role of governments now is to start to move away from GDP must not be the first metric of growth that we refer to. And I think that it, it, it has to be multilater- multilateralism that solves this. You know, family businesses have to be prepared to say that they're going to sacrifice profits. Um, but multinational corporations equally, um, you know, have to be prepared to say, We'll sacrifice some profits. We'll reinvest some profits into combating impact. And governments have to be prepared to do the same. They have to be able to give, you know, research and development incentives um, to companies that are developing alternatives to climate climate impactful, um, you know, uh, uh, industries. So it sounds like. Again, your familiarity, and again, it's the circle of of families that you work with and speak with and engage with, are still looking to multinationals for the nod, to take a leadership role, to step up and maybe start to contribute in new ways, uh, take a hit on profits, whatever the case may be. Yet, um, there was a recent McKinsey report, uh, Asia's Future is Now, which actually showed that across Asia Pacific, the profit margins of Asia conglomerates were on average over 50% compared to 30-some-odd percent for multinationals, suggesting their access to resources and and, uh, um, their ability to be efficient and to manage their organizations well gave them some room to play, if you will, uh, with the possibility of actually investing in more impactful uh, type of of, uh, initiatives. I I just wonder if if everyone's talking about Asia's leading now, they're moving from not just being viable but leading, shouldn't this be one of those areas where Asia family businesses begin to demonstrate what's really possible? I, I sincerely hope so. Um, I sincerely hope in my you know, lifetime um, and in my professional working life 
that we see that transition, mm. that we see that real leadership. And, you know, I think we are starting to see it. I think one of the direct outcomes of those profit margins that you've just quoted to me, which I haven't seen that report, so I can't um, say that I, I, I know that statistic, but it's certainly true, right? The growth of wealth in Asia across the globe is just, you know, exponential. And we are also coming up to an often quoted statistic around the family wealth um, sphere is that we're about to see a $4 trillion um, wealth transition across generations from second to third or third to fourth generation in some cases. Um, and we are also seeing more first generation wealth being created. You know, um, China um, generating on average, I think, two um, dollar billionaires a week um, over the last four to five years. It would be interesting to see how that statistic slows down by the time, you know, statistic measurement catches up with the current um, slowdown in China. But look, the reality is that, you know, there are more family offices. There's on average 200 family offices, I think is a statistic I read, and I can't quote where that's from, but, um, you know, 200 family offices cropping up um, every year in Asia, and, and probably many, many more than that. Mm. Um, so yes, there is a role, there is a role in leadership for those who have generated fabulous wealth to take. And I strongly you know, condone and in fact urge those families to look to positive environmental impact to create positive um, commercial return as a means of continuing to preserve and generate and protect the wealth of their own families, but also of the societies and the communities which they uphold through their family businesses. The sense of urgency. I mean, you said early on in the conversation, climate change, environmental degradation, um, a lot of the destruction that's going on, uh, whether it's the Amazon or it's the forests of, of Indonesia, uh, we're at risk. Uh, rising water levels, uh, de de depleted aquifers and, and fresh water. Uh, you've got issues which are going to bear down on us in the next eight to 30 years. It, it doesn't feel to me like we've got a lot of time to sit around and politely debate whether or not funds should be deployed effectively to impact environmental, socially sustainable uh, areas. It seems to me like it's imperative. So I'm wondering who's lighting the fire underneath uh, you know, the, 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 the feet of these organizations that have all this first-generation wealth. I mean, where is the real impetus going to come from? Because I just don't see it coming from governments. I don't see it coming from the West. I see it coming from Asia. And it feels to me like if real leadership is going to bare its teeth, this feels to me like the moment. I'm just wondering, Rob, I mean, you know, where do you think it's going to happen? Is, is, it, is it third generation? I'm pressing you a little bit because I know that, you know, but, but, but you rightfully have said there's a lot at stake. Uh, and I'm just curious to find out, you know, who's going to, if you will, step up first. I wish I knew the answer. Um, I'm hoping that, you know, I and we in our business and with our partners in family businesses are doing our little bit. And I, I just pray that everyone is doing their little bit. Um, and, you know, I, I hope um, there's a lot of privacy. There's a lot of secrecy around family businesses, there's a lot of privacy and secrecy, rightfully, for many reasons, you know, for self-preservation. There are risks associated with being um, incredibly wealthy. Um, you know, the obvious ones spring to mind, um, kidnap, piracy, 
um, you know, loss of um, personal freedoms. Um, but with great wealth comes great privilege. And I think you can't have great privilege without handling it and holding it dear and saying, I have to do something with this privilege. And I hope that, you know, some of those family members or their appointed representatives will take the lead. They can still retain their privacy, but they can appoint representatives, they can appoint professionals, and they can speak out, they can tell people why they are investing in things and what they are investing in and the reasons behind that. I think that's one positive move. They can share and collaborate in private forums with their peers so that more people collaborate and co-invest with one another. And, you know, ultimately, I think, going back to my experience in the Middle East for four years, there's um, a great gentleman um, called Fadi Gandur, who's one of the founders of Aramex, one of the biggest logistics businesses in the Middle East, and a great exponent of families getting involved in the risk capital game. Um, we, we face unprecedented challenges. You know, we have unprecedented uh, levels of population in the world. Um, we have uh, unprecedented levels of resources demand, but we also have unprecedented levels of growth and cost reduction in you know renewable energy sources. So we have great opportunities along with great challenges. And so I really think that the time is now for family offices to say, let's step up and be counted. Let's put some of our capital at risk. Out of it, they could invest in the very earliest stages or the growth stages of the next you know, renewable energy or um, climate impact reduction unicorn. And wouldn't that be a great outcome because they're, they're profiting, um, but also, you know, able to invest in businesses that will generate livelihoods for a greater number of new employees. New, a whole new industries will spring up. You know, there are whole new industries that did not exist five years ago, which are centered around the impact game. Mm. Um, look at Tesla, you know, that business did not exist perhaps a decade ago, maybe just over a decade ago. It's now one of the biggest sort of household names. Um, you know, it's still not producing nearly as much um, in terms of um, vehicle production as the conventional vehicle production and conventional vehicle producers are scrambling to, to catch up on the technology that Tesla has open architectured. And, you know, there's an example of um, Elon Musk's, um, you know, great vision, but also his great munificence, his philanthropic endeavor, which is I'm going to open architecture, everything that I pattern, mm. you know, so that people can learn and profit from it. So, so a lot of this deals with setting examples at the highest levels, uh, entrepreneurs, CEOs, founders, demonstrating that there's a unique and original way of going to market profitably, but responsibly. Absolutely, you know, we <laughs> we all end up meeting our maker, um, and you know, um, one of the biggest climate naysayers, you know, very sadly, on a personal level for his family, um, you know, David Koch has um, just departed um, this earth this week. Um, but you know, I think that he has done great damage to. Um, the climate agenda and I, I think that's sad sad on a personal level for him um, that he hasn't used his wealth more wisely um, 
and you know I think yeah there's a leadership function for people of great wealth to take and uh, I wholeheartedly appeal to them to seek out whatever resource it is because ultimately I'm a strong believer that you know any dollar that is devoted to impact is a positive dollar and ultimately much more of that cumulative impact needs to go into grassroots to start to grow impact from the ground up. Rob, it's a long road, but uh, there's hope in your voice and, and in, in, your, in your suggestions here. We wish you great luck. Keep beating that drum and uh, let's check in in a few months, see how it's going. I'd be delighted to and keep in touch. That was my conversation with Rob Garrett, impact investor and managing partner of Singapore-based Hazar Ventures. My conversation with Rob left me feeling both hopeful and anxious. And so it is on this week's Asia Insider Minute that we contemplate both. There's hope because there's money. Indeed, Asia is awash in private capital just waiting to be deployed. And that's where the anxiety sets in. Private wealth isn't responding as quickly as one might hope. Understandably, wealthy families are reluctant to put their money to work on projects that might not yield the highest possible rate of return. But on the other hand, the clock is ticking, and notions of investing for any reason other than profit are taking too long to gel. Rob reminds us that shifts in mindset can take time, even generations. And while there are signs of change, impact investing still remains too theoretical for most. A recent Camden Wealth Global Family Offices report suggests that almost two-fifths of family offices are now engaged in sustainable investing. That's good, but not good enough. As I point out in our discussion, governments are still too slow-moving and underfunded to drive sustainable investments. The best they can do is establish the right regulatory frameworks and incentives to encourage socially responsible investing. Multinationals, meanwhile, have their own issues to deal with, most notably shareholders. And unless or until Wall Street decides to give MNCs a waiver, profits, not purpose, will rule the day. That leaves family wealth, and as noted at the outset of this episode, there's no shortage of it, something in the range of U.S. $6 trillion under management. No one is asking the world's wealthiest families to give it all away, although in the case of Warren Buffett or Bill and Melinda Gates, that's exactly what they're doing. Asia sees its fair share of high-profile donations made by the region's wealthiest families. Yet pound for pound, Asian billionaires are less philanthropic than their North American or European counterparts. Unless this sounds like judgment, it may be due in part to poor incentives. Tax breaks in the West, for example, prove a powerful enticement for the rich to give and give generously. To some extent, the resistance to impact investing may be subject to similar disincentives. Feed-in tariffs on solar, government subsidies for wind, and a whole range of tax incentives for buying electric cars, recycling, or better management of resources have been mainstays of government policymaking, particularly in Europe. In Asia, basic development needs in education, healthcare, and housing occupy the lion's share of attention and financial support. Offering tax breaks for investing in environmentally or socially sustainable projects just doesn't rank at the moment. What does it all add up to? A sense of urgency, perhaps. If Asia's family offices see a decline in living conditions, environmental health, and poor labor conditions, perhaps they'll respond with an uptick in philanthropic giving or social enterprise investing. 
Did you know that the number one reason for making charitable contributions is guilt? In the same vein, if Asia's communities begin to suffer and populations flounder, perhaps Asia's wealthy will see the merit in making investments that preserve the middle class and the natural environment. In other words, if financial self-interest is what it takes to mobilize Asia's family offices to grow the size of their impact investing portfolios, then so be it. Better to feed the beast than be fed to it. What's your take on impact investing? What do you think it'll take to mobilize the region's wealth in the interests of self-preservation? We want to know what you think. Rate and comment on this episode wherever you download your podcasts. And if you want to know more about impact investing or any number of other Asia-related topics, please subscribe to the Inside Asia newsletter. Each week, we deliver new insights, point you to reliable resources, and showcase episodes on related topics. To subscribe, go to www.insideasiaadvisors.com. Scroll to the bottom of the homepage, fill in your name and email, and start receiving our weekly update. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Inside Asia. There's more where this came from. We are 102 episodes in and counting, bringing to you in-depth conversations with some of the sharpest and most well-informed insiders throughout Asia. Is there a topic we haven't covered? Let us know. To subscribe and download any or all of our episodes, visit Inside Asia at iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or comment and rate the program on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter. Until next time, this is Steve Stein saying, come in from the outside on Inside Asia. Thank you.